You're listening to the Poetry of Impact podcast, illuminating the unheard stories of today's top leaders in impact with your host, Gino Borges. Welcome back, everyone, to the Poetry of Impact podcast. Today's episode comes to us in conjunction with our partnership with Nexus, a conversation on the depths of climate action with Teal Brown Zimri and Hari Balasubramanian. Teal is a partner at Galvanize Partners, LLC, and the executive director of Lab to Land, which is such a cool project in Truckee, California. Hari is a co-founder at Eco Investors Capital and managing partner at Eco Advisors. In this episode, you'll hear Teal and Hari as they build upon each other, bringing to light the many layers on climate action. The two talk about the importance of connecting decision makers to the natural world through direct experience which I've also benefited from. They've emphasized the importance of context and connection and recognition of unintended consequences. Both Teal and Hari also urge us to be open to new ways of engaging with the natural world in a much more productive way, like being open to a different pace and adjusting our level of comfort while also letting go of our agenda. They leave us with the wisdom that progress moves at the pace of trust and the motivation to move beyond fear and demonstrate the art of possibility. So with that, slow down, open your heart, and enjoy the conversation with Teal and Hari. Hi, Teal and Hari. It's so great to have you here today. Wonderful to be here, Gina. Hi, Thanks for having us. Yeah. And where are both of you guys calling in from today, Teal? You first, you? I am calling in from Oakland, California. Cool. And Hari? And I'm sitting here on the east coast of Canada, Halifax, Nova Scotia. Oh, nice. So close to each other. And I'm calling in from Reno, Nevada, so I'm a little closer to Teal than I am Hari. But you know what we're all close in is we're all close in what we're working on. And also our stories are very similar. Part of the reason why I wanted to get us all together um, is first and foremost is that Part of our interest in climate comes from the fact that we're all sharing these uh, lives together, not just on earth, but in terms of the chapter of lives we're in uh, or the chapter of life we're in. We're both or we're all three of us are parents to young kids. And I know that's been a huge influence on why I have gotten involved in climate. Uh, My original um, climate investing per se was more of an academic. Uh, I was uh, about five years ago, I was convinced with uh, on the white paper approach to uh, climate. And so I invested on my own account. So it was more of a cognitive construct. But when the wildfires started happening, and my young boy was pressing his gla- uh, face up against the glass and couldn't go outside. Uh, that's when it really became a visceral moment. Uh, I know how you work extensively in uh, converting intention into action. Uh, for me, it was a very visceral moment that actually converted me from just investing on my own account to helping my community get involved in uh, projects as well. So with that in mind, uh, maybe Teal, uh, you can start with a little bit about your background and then we can follow up with Hari in terms of how your family experience and your nature connection uh, has, has kind of brought you up to this point and then um, Hari can share a little bit as well. Sure. I love the question about my nature experience. You know, of course, that starts when you're a tiny kiddo with bare feet in the dirt. Um, But also, as you pointed out, a huge part of that story is watching my own kids with their bare feet in the dirt. Um, And then the smoke rolling in. 
my background has been, you know, broadly speaking, not in climate change until about the last seven, seven years or so. But watching the smoke roll into the mountains I love and grew up in and watching the impact of that on my children, as you pointed out, uh, has been a substantial commitment space for me to lean into climate change. And I think, you know, what interests me about fire as, as the catalyst for, for engaging in climate change is that it is such a intersection of problems. It's not just climate change. It is the economic systems that have created catastrophic wildfire. It is colonialism that has created catastrophic wildfire. And it is climate change that acts like a giant atmospheric mosquito sucking moisture out of our forests and exacerbating uh, the wildfires. So, you know, my own story is very much about the mountains, very much about the forest, and my career has now aligned with that, which is, is something I'm grateful for. That's incredible, Teal. Uh, and it's interesting because we, we talk about this connection a lot, but my story is actually quite the opposite. Um, you talk about, we learn our connection to nature with our bare feet in the, in the dirt as kids. When people meet me, they often think that I was a kid chasing after frogs and uh, loved nature, but I was the opposite. I had no interest in nature at all when I was a kid. <clears throat> See, my story in connection to, to climate and the environment is actually a people connection. When I was a kid, I lost my father at a very young age through a tragedy, um, one of the most horrific terrorist attacks uh, in the world. But what I saw after that moment was my mother, my family, our extended family and community rally around to bring the six-year-old kid away from this traumatic experience into you know, a productive member of society and a positive, really real influence uh, on my life. And I always thought that I'd repay that debt doing something in service of people. I thought I was going to be a doctor. You know, I'm a first generation South Asian kid. You get two choices in life. You good at math, you become an engineer, you good at science, you become a doctor. You don't become a climate scientist or a, or a conservationist. So it never really entered my frame of reference. But I got into the climate and sustainability space 20 years ago. So 10 years or 11 years before my, my kids. And it wasn't because of nature or uh, anything else at that point. It was because of the connection I saw with people. And the nature piece and the climate piece was a total random accident. Because when I learned I couldn't be a doctor, I was, I was downtrodden. I was depressed. I was in university. I'd volunteered after high school in a rural hospital in South India. And I thought that was my path. But it wasn't right for me. So through university, I learned it wasn't right. And in my last semester of my last year of university, I happened to be sitting in an ecology class with Amanda Vincent, the leading expert in the world on seahorses. One of her grad students walked in and was looking for a research assistant. And she said, I need someone that knows how to scuba dive, that's willing to live in a protected area in southern Portugal, and uh, is willing to able to speak or willing to learn Portuguese. And I shot my hand up, not because I was interested in seahorses or nature, but because I was scared of becoming an adult and going into the real world. But what I learned there was two things. One, nature is incredible. So if none of you know about seahorses, they're one of the most magical creatures on this planet. Not only because they're bony little fish that swim upright and look really cool, but they're monogamous. So we're talking about family. Seahorses mate with the same partner every year. They also have an elaborate courtship ritual. So we'd watch them underwater, <laughs> spinning around, dancing, day by day getting more complicated until this one magical day when they mated, rising up in the water column, twirling in a dance down, where, get this, the female deposits her eggs into the male. It's the only family 
that exists on the planet where the male carries <laughs> fertilized eggs and gives live birth to baby adorable seahorses. And I spent eight hours a day underwater watching this, a real connection with nature. But the eight hours a day I wasn't underwater, I was with the communities in coastal southern Portugal. And I talked to them because I like people. And I learned from them that the seahorses weren't the most important part of this story. They weren't even the fifth most important part of this story. But the natural environment underwater was absolutely essential for the communities and their livelihoods and their food security and health and education, all the things that, that community needed. And I was super lucky that at around 20 years old, I learned that the seahorses are cool in and of themselves, but this idea that nature is separate from people is completely asinine. And I learned that protecting the seahorses was protecting the nature that really helped these people in these communities. And the fact of the matter is that if we didn't help those communities, humanity was destined for failure. So I turned this, this dream of becoming a doctor and helping patients one by one into this notion that if we protect nature, we can help societies and humanity thrive in perpetuity. And that just translates into my kids now because they're in this world because of community and other people. And their world is going to be shaped by our relationship with the natural environment, not by anything else that we do. So Hari, you know how to speak Portuguese? I faked it because I learned how to speak Spanish the year before and I figured Spanish and Portuguese are basically the same language. <laughs> nice. So so my ancestors are actually from the Azores. I'm, I'm three quarters Portuguese. Uh, <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah. Uh, so something that I heard in both of your stories is this notion of intersectionality. Um, Teal, you were talking about uh, you know colonialism in relation to climate and all the factors that bear on this moment and Hari you were talking about what was happening underground or excuse me not underground but underneath the ocean is actually um, people's livelihoods like communities can't exist in that particular part of the world without paying attention to the vibrancy and the resiliency sort of underwater I've so one of the things that I struggle with with the term or excuse me it's not the term intersectionality it's like I get it but how do you move from the concept, it sounds really cool, taking these concepts of connection and actually making it actually feel connected for somebody. And I mean, that's where it's always kind of stuck out. Like, when does it stop being an, uh, an academic exercise? I know, Hari, you mentioned that with your particular experience. But, um, and because all of a sudden you get into a room with a lot of impact people and they're talking about all these intersections going on. And then it's it's really a festive in the sense for for a head you know playing kind of a a cognitive game and a quick little sugar hit, but I know both of you are really focused on action, and for you to understand the problem, you are also looking at the multiple causes. But at what point and how do you translate that to people that you need to help and that you are helping so that they also get it as well? And maybe Teal, I'll just begin with you. And then uh, we'll have Hari uh, join in a little bit on that as well. I love this question so much, Dino. Um, and not to, you know, focus too much on fire, but for me, uh, I actually had the opportunity to take several policymakers, lawmakers, investors, you know, folks of different backgrounds into the forest not too long ago, a few years ago. Um, and we told the story of fire. You know, we stood in a circle. We picked up pine cones uh, and we talked about what happens. And I think 
what is so powerful uh, when you are physically in nature with people who are, to your point, really thinking about it as an academic exercise, a lawmaking exercise, an investment exercise, and you hold up a, you know, a pine cone. The story of that pine cone is, is actually, it's really fascinating. It's really diverse. It's really multi-layered. And what it is, is a source of food for people that literally grew up with these forests. They co-evolved the populations of the entire arid west of North America were co-created with the human beings that lived on them. So these are landscapes that have been managed since their inception, since the ice melted by humans who have set fires, who have lived in and among the trees, and who have used those pine cones as a source of nutrients. And then they have used fire to help the pine cones open. They're literally adapted so that if, if there is not low-level fire, the seeds don't pop. They don't emerge uh, from the pine cones. So you can't have the food without the fire. And just telling that story while you're holding the pine cone, and then let's talk about the next phase of that pine cone. It becomes, it becomes an economic driver. We create the U.S. Forest Service. It's you know, measured by board feet sold. We create this entity that's supposed to come in and, you know, quote unquote, manage the land you're standing in, the pine cone you're holding, and it's supposed to measure its value by the dollars it creates for the U.S. federal government. How do you, how do you, you know, align that with the pine cone you're holding that we've just talked about releases its food with healthy human fire to a population of humans that rely on that here where you are standing today on this ground? And then let's layer on the next piece of that pine cone. The next piece of that pine cone is that we're going to drop chemicals on the forest to protect the economic asset. We've now tied our government to the value of the pine cone and the timber. We've now tied our forest service to board feet sold. We're going to drop chemicals on the forest. We're going to stop all of that healthy human fire. We're going to shut it down. Those seeds won't pop. Not only that, what's going to happen? What's going to happen? Look around you while you're standing in this forest. You used to be able to ride through this forest on a, on a horse, to live in this forest, in community. And now it is densely populated. The sun does not hit the ground. Water does not seep into the soil under your feet. It melts when it freezes as snow on the canopy. And what, what do you think happens when fire comes in? It fries that pine cone. It eliminates that seed stock. It creates a stand-replacing event. So what happens to the biodiversity, to the food, and to the humans that rely on this landscape when we are seeing stand-replacing events? Well, what happens is a loss of nutrients, a loss of community, a loss of that food source, a loss of connection. So I think, um, you know, to put that in tactical terms, we actually created a little book of postcards and, and started taking walks in the forest with forest leaders, with, with lawmakers, with elected officials, and making them hold pine cones and touch trees. Oh, nice. Um, you know, <laughs> and think about it. It's, it's uh, good. really brings it home. Yeah. So I want, to pull, I want to pull three things out of what Teal said and add a couple of layers. <clears throat> so what I heard you say, Teal, was, was three things I was thinking about. One is context. So how does the system play in the human nature connection and that human dominated fire is, is, is common in, in your backyard in the, in the Tahoe region. So context is really important connection. So connection between people and nature, but also connection between people and people <clears throat> that face similar kinds of things. And the third piece is unintended consequences, which is why when we go down the path of value creation, we, 
we focus in on those things that we want to focus on because they're generating value, but ignore those things that <clears throat> are unintended consequences and we say, oh, we won't worry about that. But those become the problems of the future that, we have to, that we're dealing with now. <clears throat> so in terms of context, what I'll share with you after Portugal, I, I was super fortunate to be able to work and live in tropical locations around the world. First as a marine conservationist in Southeast Asia, uh, the Indian Ocean and the Caribbean, and then at Conservation International where I had a remit over pretty much everything that we touched in our country programs and our external investments. And we covered about 55 countries around the world. And what I learned there was a tremendous amount about context. So I got to be in the field with, you know, a given month I'd be in the field in Eastern DRC with um, Tootsie Kings looking at um, lowland gorillas. The next week I'd be in the middle of the Amazon in Brazil with the Kayapo. The next week I might be in, um, in the Caribbean with, uh, with a government agency. I got to learn a lot from a lot of people that had experience on the ground. And I didn't spend a lot of time talking. What I learned very early is the best thing to do is sit down and have a coffee with people that know what's happening on the ground. The other thing I learned is that <clears throat> to bring people to those places, so the people that you brought into the forest to go for a walk and hold the pine cone, is so valuable to bring that connection, to help them understand context. So coming back to your point, Gino, about sitting in a room with impact investors talking about intersectionality and all these things, that is the problem. You're sitting in midtown Manhattan talking about these things, and you're not sitting in the forest learning about these things in the reality and in the context where it happens. And that's why there's a disconnect between intention and action, because the people with intention, means, and resources and privilege largely don't understand what's happening in the real world. <laughs> the connection piece is really important, too. Because we often go in the field and we say, this is isolated to this place and this problem. But the example that you just gave to you, we work around the world. We have a project with traditional owners in the central and western deserts of Australia, a heavily human-based fire-dominated landscape. And if you look at the Australian wildfires, a big reason for the strength and longevity of those fires is because the traditional burning practice in the central and western deserts has been eradicated because of colonial interests and getting people off country. So a big project for traditional owners and indigenous people in Australia is to get people back on country to do those things that were limiting the fuel load in, in, because the fire regime is now a natural part in that human nature connection. So a really critical thing after taking people in the forest in California is to say that your experience with forest, fire, and people is not unique to the Pacific Northwest. It's the same situation with slightly different um, pieces of the story in the deserts of Australia, halfway around the world. Um, and that's fascinating, but also draws connectivity and says, this is a problem bigger than my locale and my community and the place that I know best. It's replicated in a bunch of different places. The third piece about unintended consequences is really important too. Because if we recognize that and try to limit fire by doing other things, and we think that that is the sole focus of what we need to do, and we forget about what else might happen, then we're, we're um, setting ourselves up largely for disaster. And there's so many examples in development and conservation where we focus, hyper-focus on climate or on a certain species of biodiversity or a certain community aspect. And we build something that's really good at solving that problem, but it creates 10 other problems that are a lot worse. <laughs> and there's so many good examples of this. The one I heard most recently was in Climate Week in New York. Uh, a friend of mine, Jen Morris, who's now the CEO of the Nature Conservancy, she was my first boss at Conservation International. She shared with me that today in West Virginia, the number one cause of deforestation is not timberlands, it's not agriculture. Guess what it is? It's the energy transition to solar. 
because people recognize now with the incentives for solar installation that it's easier to get large blocks of land, which is timberland rather than agricultural land. So it's non-converted timberland. But to convert that into solar farms, you have to cut down the forest. So the number one cause of deforestation is the energy transition to renewables. How ridiculous is that? You're solving the climate crisis by creating a biodiversity and nature crisis, which is going to exacerbate the climate problem. So if we don't think about those unintended consequences, we have the state of West Virginia being deforested to allow for more solar installation to convert the energy grid, but causing deeper and more systemic problems across the board. We can't do that. So intersectionality is another thing that I get frustrated with as well, because it doesn't come down to the ground. What we're really talking about is risk resilience and managing those unintended consequences and thinking about the system rather than the individual problem and solution. Wow, that's such a really uh, moving story about the West Virginia, because, you know, obviously our tribe probably beats up on Senator Manchin as, you know, a criminal. Uh, but the great irony is, is that our renewable efforts are doing just as are, you know, are also uh, doing damage. And I think you guys really hit on on this whole idea of following the, you know, the value creation, uh, being able to s- see what's happening with the unintended consequences. But Hari and Teal. Um, you know, Teal, you had your lawmaker example, uh, in terms of the cards, in terms of getting them out there. Um, and Hari, you're talking about these Australian folks that are brought in the city are now, and now being, um, uh, trying to incentivize people to go back on the land, actually manage and steward the land. What do we need to do? I was really moved by your story, Hari, about, uh, you know, wealthy, mostly waspy people sitting in, uh, a completely detached context in metro areas um, and yet construct intentionality is all there, but the action isn't. I mean, what do we need to do to actually, and what have you seen done, if not you and Teal, what have you seen others do to say, hey guys, I mean, it's kind of time to put down uh, the cocktails and join me out here for, you know, this journey. And I mean, bring bring your car hearts, you know, sort of kind of moment and your beanie hat and your Patagonia coat, because it's going to be cold. It's going to be raw or it's going to be hot, hot as hell. So, uh, but (laughs) I mean, that's essentially what it is. It's like, it's basically, uh, the wealthy move from one climate controlled moment to another climate controlled moment. And really what you guys are talking about requires a bit of acceptance and engagement of rawness and the natural world can be quite raw to a large extent but yet at the same time that's the kind of the stimulus of spirit the stimulus of ahas like no aha moment happens in a climate controlled context i've never been aha in a climate controlled <laughs> context right i mean little sugar hits like oh that's really interesting but nothing like that that makes me feel on par that i'm hanging out with god that has only happened in contexts where I'm slightly uncomfortable and then found a way to be resilient or adaptive. I think that's a great point, Gina. And I'll start a little bit here. So I think it's, it's getting people in place, but it's more than just that, right? So we've had lots of experiences where you get people in, in, in country or on, in place and they still can't, they're not open to the idea of discomfort, change and learning. So I think you have to educate people about how to, participate and learn from the context that they're about to go into as well. Um, I think also uh, we talk about this a lot in the impact investing space around lost in translation, the disconnect between capital and community. And 
also the role of people in between to help help make that connection and translate between those two very very different worlds and you know to be quite honest that, that that's where our businesses were born from which was essentially seeing this disconnect and building enterprises that facilitate the conversation and tra- like we're nothing more than glorified translators i would say between these two worlds of, of channeling resources towards impact around the world and we do it at scale we're very successful at it but at the end of the day we're not doing anything except for helping people with with resources channel that to action on the ground and you would think it's simple enough just to connect those two groups and that think and magic would happen but it doesn't because these other elements are important so i think bringing people to the place is important i think opening their minds to how how to engage productively is important and what that means is to be open to a different pace be open to a different level of comfort like the climate control versus the you know the sticky wet hot tropical forest to be open to not having an agenda because then you might enter a point of connection that's much deeper than your agenda your previous or or you know thoughtful agenda would have got you towards uh, four is understanding that you're a learner more than you're a teacher <clears throat> um, in what it, especially if you're going into the community that is not yours right and we have a lot of examples of people going and saying this is how things should be done rather than listening to how what the issues and problems and what the context of the community is and fifth and this pace thing is really important I have so many conversations with people that say on the ground that say I wish that people from the north would just come sit out on the end of the dock with us have a coffee and a cigarette and chat and not have anywhere to go, not have any agenda, not pitch me anything, not talk about terms, but just get to know me. I think fundamentally at the end of all of that, what we need to understand is that progress and sustainability moves not on the pace of your term sheet. It moves at the pace of trust and trust is about relationships and relationships are about deep connection, which you can't plan for. Hi, that's so beautiful. Um, and I agree deeply with everything you said. And I would add maybe a couple of layers to, to a few pieces that I heard. You talked a little bit about previously intended and unintended consequences. Um, and I think that it's not just about being open to a different experience, open to uh, no agenda, spaciousness, but there is also, you know, an incredible value to understanding our own role in what have been the unintended consequences. And that is very challenging to confront, particularly as people who live within a capitalist structure. And you talked about the need to attach how the finances flow with the way we approach the problem, how we arrive in the forest or on the beach or in the desert. Um, Grief over climate change is not a small barrier. It, it is, I think, a very substantial barrier. Um, understanding our own role in the economics, in the structures that brought us to this point is something that I think can be very challenging and uncomfortable. And I'm not suggesting we all have to go to some deep uh, place of guilt or our personal role. But I do think we have to be open to the possibility that it's really scary, that the problem is huge, that it's going to be uncomfortable, and that the solutions may look 
a lot smaller sometimes than we want them to look. They may be more individual in nature. Uh, they may be more communal scale in nature. And when we confront both that reality as well as the size of the problem, it can feel frustrating, defeating, and, and ridden, I think, with, with overwhelm. Um, and so finding the pathways to just deal with that but still show up is, I think, a, a really important piece of how we help shift from intention to action um, to, to use the words you have. And then to talk just about the capital flows, I sometimes think that uh, this is where, not to pivot too much, philanthropy can fall short um, and other financial mechanisms can show up uh, with greater sort of decentralized value. And what I mean by that is that um, when things are driven by the donor, I think they become attached to the intention. When things are driven by a market or adoption or simply trusting and believing in those people that you mentioned sitting and having a coffee and a cigarette, uh, that tends to take more of an impact investment or um, non-traditional philanthropy structure, and it puts the power in the hands of a, a different set of folks to make the decisions. So I think that's also a meaningful uh, piece of the transition from intention to action. I just want to layer two things on this. So one is that um, I agree with much of what you said, Teal, except for that last piece, which is that I don't think that the mechanism of transaction is is predicated on who who designs the, the product or program or the solution. I think we should need to decouple those things. So we need to figure out sort of what the solution is for the context and then figure out how to finance it. It might be philanthropy, it might be concessionary, but it may well be commercial. And in many cases, it's some or all of the above. I think we need to be more creative about that connection in between. <clears throat> um, the second piece I wanted to layer on is something you talked about in terms of, uh, in terms of that, that guilt and, and the difficulty of connecting because many of the folks, Gino, you said this as well, <clears throat> many of the folks sitting with intentionality and in a climate controlled boardroom in midtown Manhattan are, are waspy. And um, I forget the way I look sometimes because I grew up in a very waspy environment. I grew up in Canada um, and I went to good schools and I lived a middle-class life and all that kind of stuff. But I look the way I do and I'm brown. And I'm reminded by this in my, in my career. So I think the other piece is just understanding where you sit in the spectrum and, and where you can play. And I'm going to share two quick stories which is what reminded me about this, because I view myself as part of the global north, which I am. But in community, I don't necessarily come across that way. So one example was working in the boreal in northern uh, Manitoba in Canada through a project. I remember being there with our donor. Uh, it's an Australian company. Um, there were some board members there. There was the program officer. There was a bunch of people from the local partner group, which is a national organization in Canada. Largely, if not completely white, the, the Cree nation was... Um, had invited an elder to build a sweat lodge for um, uh, an important part of, of, of this of this property, the largest um, timber holding in North America, 15 million acres. It's a beautiful place <clears throat> in the Blue Forest. But as we walked by, the thing that the elder said to me as I went by to take a look at the sweat lodge and the construction was, how nice is it to see another Indian for a change? <laughs> and I said, well, what do you mean? He said, well, look, you're brown like me. We have something in common. And he knew that I was part of that group, but I was less foreign like and othered than the, the rest of that group. The other example was I remember I was in Colombia. Similarly, we were working for a, a large resources company. <clears throat> and I was sitting with the president of uh, the local operation in northern Colombia. We were on the phone with people in New York, in London, and uh, in, in Melbourne. Lunchtime came. The conference call went down. The conversation switched from English to Spanish. <clears throat> 
And the president of the operation proceeded to rail against those gringos that keep telling us what to do in our country. Five minutes, he was yelling, profanity laden in Spanish. Then he looked at me and he said, oh, I hope you don't think I include you as one of those gringos because you speak Spanish and you're brown like me, so you're fine. <laughs> but I think it's another piece of just like how that translation happens is about the connection points in the people and, and knowing sort of how you can play in making that connection between capital and community work and where your role can be. And that's back to your point, Teal, about roles. So some of us have the luxury of playing one foot in between. Uh, many of us don't. But I think taking advantage of all those steps along the chain to build that bridge so we can get action done is really important. Hey, Hari, I want to ask you something because, you know, well, uh, I should have clarified and by dint. Um, so when I used WASPy, I, I come from, a, I was trained in really um, postmodern philosophy when, when I did my PhD in philosophy. And, and one of the things that's really interesting, and, uh, and, and it comes full circle to what you just got done sharing, is, is that you have uh, the white Anglo-Saxon Protestant is, uh, sure, it's embodied in the color of the skin to some, for sure. Like, that's its known connection. But its real power is in the ideology of waspiness, meaning that regardless of skin, there's a lots of different skin colors per se. There's lots of different languages that are operating. Their operating system is largely uh, a waspy ideology discursive system and using the terminologies and so forth. So I just wanted to massage that notion because I know the political left and it kind of drives me nuts because I think it actually shrinks and marginalizes the conversation so much by boxing people in based on what can actually be seen um, in terms of skin color. And, and I know, and I'm not here to deny that, but I think what's missed as a result of you were talking about the unintended consequence of doing that is, is that the invisible discourse and ideology, the system of beliefs, actually, uh, if we all, if, if that discursiveness and that ideology is about extraction, regardless of whether what color your skin is or what language you're in, you're still participating in the problem, uh, per se. So it can be a Spanish-speaking, dark-skinned person in Brazil that's adopting the WASPy ideology of the West, of the power structure, um, and still, and so I think that kind of nuances the conversation just a little bit more than um, how the far left just likes to box people up in terms of where, in terms of what can be seen. I, just some thoughts on what you guys have seen in the climate space uh, and in your own life as it relates to that potential like opening of, you know, um, of this conversation. <laughs> I might start, Teal, just quickly. I completely agree with you, Gino, and especially in this point where we're so hung up on this notion of diversity in leadership, in boards, in, in conversations. And the fact of the matter is we use the, the phenotype or the, or the physical to denote diversity, not, not the piece that you're talking about. Yeah. And one thing that frustrates me beyond belief is that I, I get asked to be on boards all the time as the diverse representative, but I have no sort of substantive or class diversity. It's just one and the same. And, and when we see a lot of these diversity managers being supported and things like that, it's similar, right? Yeah. They're all Ivy League educated from, not from the communities that we're, that we're actually trying to target, but they look the part or they might play the part from a, and they tick a box. But I completely agree with the notion that in order to have true diversity, we need to think about the layers underneath. 
and really getting the voice from 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 more places. And it's a constant struggle that we have, um, and it's a conversation I have with with peers a lot. Is that on the one hand, it's useful to have that perspective to sit on a board or a leadership or a governance role, but it's a very different thing to have some, someone that actually represents that diversity to sit there, and they're the ones that are still not getting access, right? So it's it's really a challenge. I think uh, that's such a, such a valuable point, and you know, to your point earlier, Hari, about kind of the patience and the willingness to walk into something without an agenda. I think one of the challenges that I've seen when I see organizations try to, I'll use the word diversify, is, you know, we don't all speak the same language. Uh, We don't all move in the same pace. We don't all have the same, you know, jargon on purpose. And that's a great thing. And also it changes the pace and the conversation within the organization so substantially that sometimes I see, uh, particularly I'll use the fire uh, example, um, I, see, I see organizations kind of stumble as they try to involve people who come from really different backgrounds and do actually bring a lot of different diversity uh, because they're not quite sure how to listen, um, not quite sure how to bring that perspective in and turn it into the strategic action they want to see. Uh, but yet there's an urgency to do that. And so um, taking the urgency out, bringing in the diverse perspectives, allowing them to bubble up whatever it is that may arise, and then being patient in pulling that into the strategy of the organization is, this, is a very challenging um, thing and an incredibly critical thing that not many organizations are set up to do very effectively. I see this in the, the fire space as we see more organizations seek the perspective of cultural burners, um, traditional ceremonial leaders who use fire on the landscapes that are now managed by the U.S. Forest Service or by CAL FIRE. So you've got the political layers, uh, the diversity layers, the cultural backgrounds that are many layers, and just trying to create spaces where they're listening to each other and they're actually hearing each other in some way that could genuinely translate. Uh, is rare, but I, I do think I see it increasing in, in that particular space. Both of you have hinted at this whole idea of um, inhibition um, in, in either direct, uh, directly or uh, basically inhibitions from intention to action. And Teal touched on it earlier a little bit and then moved on from it. But how much of the inhibition is like, yeah, I get it. Climate's an issue. Yeah, I get it. Yeah, I went to go visit you in Truckee and I see the fire thing. And then yeah, the inhibition ultimately is like, oh, for me to really move forward, I have to dance with some opposite ideas. Um, I have to dance forward with this or some kind of grief has to happen. I mean, I have to kill off the legacy or my ancestral uh, patterns of existence and my identity, family identity. So think about it this way. Most of the, most of the people in the room, especially if they're extensive wealth holders, have probably come from an extractive legacy, right? They've come from an extractive legacy. And we all love our families. And that is a nasty dynamic to have to deal with, like, Coming along when your ancestors didn't have potentially have have the facts or the awareness then, or if they did, they denied it, da-da-da, whatever it is. And then here's the later generation suggesting like um, 
gosh, the world has changed on me. Um, and I'm asking you guys because, I mean, you guys are on the younger side of what inevitably is going to be this huge transfer of wealth amongst the very people that I'm suggesting I bump into. Um, and you see these young people just struggling. It's like, yeah, I want to do more, but family's first. And I don't want to be the person at the dinner table, you know, shitting on the show, uh, essentially. And, you know, I don't want to upset my dad. I don't want to upset my mom. I, I don't want to be the black sheep. Uh, how do we enter those conversations? And how, like, how do we... I have seen it done beautifully, but my gosh, it takes a lot of work. Um, I've seen the amount of work. And are people predisposed to put that much work into it? Or is it just kind of easier just to push the push the shit on the, you know, <laughs> to the side? <laughs> I might jump in uh, there, Hari. Um, and, you know, from my mind, it's, it's demonstration of the art of the possible. Um, you know, I think... Uh, in, in the, I think it's at Stanford at the biodiversity center, there's a big quote on the wall in destroying biodiversity. Humanity is busy sawing off the limb on which it stands. Well, that's not a particularly accessible, um, piece of information to receive, particularly when you're in the position you just described around the dinner table. It's critical, right? It's critical. But if we can just demonstrate with storytelling, um, demonstrate with technologies, you know, we're, we're heavily in this space um, of pushing the envelope around demonstrating the art of the possible. You begin to just tell stories. This is, this is a change that can happen. Here's how it incrementally grows into something positive. Um, here are the unintended consequences of which we have to be aware of and not just keeping it as a conversation. So, you know, I, I, I can't speak to the specifics of the conversation around the, you know, the dinner table, but starting with not trying to bite off the whole thing um, and just starting with demonstrations, storytelling, near-term possibility, I think is, is a really important piece of the puzzle. And then also just acknowledging we should be scaling back on lots of different fronts as humanity. And also that's just not what humanity is known for. We're known for doubling down, for digging in, for expanding and accelerating. Um, this is hard and, and it is not something that we should expect ourselves uh, to come to emotional terms with overnight, particularly, I think, within our families and, and within differing points of view. And that's where I think demonstrating what's possible is, is, is so very important because what we can't do is be so afraid of that change and, and the mechanisms it may take to achieve that, be it alternative energies, infrastructure changes, et cetera, that we don't do anything because unfortunately we don't have time. So we can't wait for ourselves to get comfortable. We have to start with the things we can see that show us what, what might be possible. I'm gonna to add to this in, in two ways. So first I'm gonna answer the question that you asked, Gino, and then I'm gonna turn it a little bit. <laughs> so, <laughs> so on the part that you asked, which is, um, you know, how we know each other through this community. So I don't come from a, a similar kind of family that the two of you come from. Um, but I do work with a lot of families like that. And what we've learned is, is reflective of what, Teal, you said, which is uh, the way we engage in that part of our advisory practice is to meet people where they are, which can be at any end of the spectrum. 
could be deep commitment to large scale ambitious change <laughs> at the top end of the spectrum. It could be just beginning the learning journey about what impact means and how it's relative to their family legacy. And I think it's really important not to start the conversation at the other end of the spectrum if you're dealing with people that are, are starting at this end, whether you're within the family or outside trying to help and advise. And, and <clears throat> I think it's meeting them where they are and giving them tools to move along that journey to get to the point that they need to be. Now, I have the opposite problem because I come from virtually nothing. My, my family on both sides comes from very small villages in, in, in India. Um, and I started my career in the nonprofit realm, like I described earlier in this conversation. And the challenge that I had early on was that we worked, I worked at Conservation International, one of the first organizations in the conservation space to really be um, open to the notion of working with private sector partners. Our founder and CEO, Peter Seligman, was very much of an open tent thinker and was my first mentor that really helped me understand that, you know, the moneymakers weren't the big, bad, evil people in the world and that we could work with them. And the biggest struggle I had was the opposite of what you're talking about, Gino, which is how do you convert your family to do something extractive to productive? How do you convert a conservation organization to think that working with a resource extraction company is a good idea? <laughs> and I was confronted with this face to face because yeah. we had the opportunity to work with BHP, the, the largest mining company in the world out of Australia. And I walked into the CEO's office at the time, Marius Kloppers. And because of the, the background and history that I had, I assumed I was going to be walking into a boardroom, top floor of a building with a big window in the back, looking at a raised field with like burning children <clears throat> um, with a high back chair and a CEO sitting, you know, petting a bald cat like Dr. Evil style. And that's what I thought I was going into the den of the devil. What Peter told me before that, before I went in there was that, look, you know, Marius is a person. I mean, everybody's we're all connected by something deeper than what you think that uh, his motivations are. And what I learned is that, yeah, he is a person he has a family. He's not going out, waking up every morning saying, I want to enslave kids in West Africa and I want to burn and pillage and rape. And I mean, there are evil people in the world, but a lot of the people that we consider that way aren't actually that evil. Yeah. They actually want to do good. And they just didn't, don't quite understand how, or there's different motivations or incentives. And we just have to work with them where they are and, and help shit. And the last part of this, this response is that if we don't, meet people where they are and get everybody on board, we are going to fail. So then I, I, I'm guessing what you guys see as partisanship must drive you guys crazy because, Hari, your last point is like, it's both sides are kind of making the other one feel like Dr. Evil. Um, and you just realize, you, how, how do we move forward if half of, half of the planet, or not half the planet, but, you know, half of your population is being predefined as kind of the enemy. Um, that's a really difficult thing. I mean, do you guys bump up into your own, like, do you come home sometimes and say, geez, I mean, could just turn down the heat uh, at times and like turn off the, uh, so much need to pre-formulate your opinion of somebody else? You know, from my perspective, just a tiny bit of context, Gino, which I know the three of us know well, but but maybe helpful is just a big fat framing on climate change. You know, pulling pulling oil, pulling coal out of the earth. We are removing carbon that has been you know sequestered for tens or maybe hundreds of millions of years, and in doing that, we not only run geologic history, we do it at warp speed, and our systems are not set up to adapt to that. And I, I point that out only because. When you do something like that, 
and we've seen this in the last 50 years that both of you could give many examples. What you do is, is you change the game all the time, both in terms of what resources we have, the economics that are associated, the regulatory systems that enable it. And so, you know, my perspective on that, and I think many would agree with me here, is ultimately climate change is going to upend business as usual in every sector. It's just a question of how, when, at whose hands, in what way. Um, and I say that because I actually think that's possibly a, a, a hopeful thing. Um, at the end of the day, most of the people we're talking about are, are rational actors um, who are driven by some set of incentives in their lives. And if we truly believe this, this problem is going to shift the nature of those incentives, um, you just find your pathway in. You find your pathway to understand the incentives as they exist for the party that you might consider to have different views. And I think what we're finding more and more and more is that the incentives are going to be or are aligned with, um, with the work that we want to do in the world. And also, uh, both Hari and I have, have places, you called it translation, Hari, and I couldn't agree more, um, where you then go out and look for the advocacy, the regulatory framework, the economic framework that pushes those incentives for rational actors to shift in the directions they need to. Um, you know, work within the institutions, work within capitalism, work within the system to, to push. Um, so with that framing, I personally don't feel that there is like an enemy or a, you know, a partisan opposite. It's more, okay, the onus is on me to frame this conversation in a way that can be heard and to seek out the pressure points uh, that are going to tip the scales in the right direction. I agree with that from a, from a personal perspective. Uh, I'll build on your framing <laughs> with a couple of ands, though. Um, so first of all, Gina, when I come home <clears throat> and I see this disconnect, I, I'm more frustrated than anything else. Because at the, at the end of the day, the disconnect or the othering <clears throat> is belying the fact that we all need this planet to exist. And we all have a sh common shared set of um, values and objectives that we're just, we're making up stories about why, why we're different. And we're we're delaying sort of addressing this problem because we're not going down to the, the base of it. <clears throat> so it's more frustration than it is, um, you know, concern or, or, or some of the other adjectives that you use. Um, in your framing, though, Teal, I would say that I've been in this space for 20 years. And I think about this from a heart, head, gut perspective. So back to the story I was telling before about being in a nonprofit, working with a mining company. There's this built up thing over the last hundred years that if you have heart, you go and work for purpose. If you want to make money, you go work for the corporate sector. And that those pools of capital are divided. And we're trying to bring that gap back together. And that's part of the bridging that we're talking about here. Can you have purpose and profit at the same time? That's the whole notion behind impact investing. The answer is yes, but we've created all these structures and perverted the incentives to make it difficult. <clears throat> and the world has learned that you either go in one path or you go in another. And usually if you go in one or the other, you realize at some point that I should make more money and support my family, or I should rid my soul of the evil that I've done and go do something for service. So we see a lot of that crossover at later stages of life. <clears throat> so what we thought in the beginning was that if we convince more people that nature is super important and sustainability is important and, and appeal to their heart, that everybody will understand what tree huggers always understood, that the environment is important for its own right and will save it. Turns out nobody acts with their heart except for the select few that end up in service anyway. So then we started thinking, well, let's build the economic argument and build the economics around sustainability, climate change, and then we had the Nobel Prize and the IPCC and all this other stuff. <clears throat> it turns out even with rational, and you talked about 
humans are rational beings? Yes and no. Because if you look at the economics today, the rational choice is to go in a more sustainable direction in multiple fronts, right? Uh, I heard in, in the most recent episode you did, Gino, um, and we've seen this number before, right? Even today, with the, all of the, the perverse incentives in place, a new kilowatt hour of generated renewable energy is cheaper than an existing kilowatt hour of coal. Yet we're investing in more coal that's more expensive. We're investing in creating more coal that's even more expensive than doing something that's cheaper. The economics work, the rational argument works, everything else works. If you want, if you took an investor hat and you wanted to put a dollar to work, you would put it in renewables and not coal. It's still not happening at scale, though, because we aren't rational actors. At the end of the day, we're emotional beings, which gets back to not the heart or the head. It's the gut. I think that the challenge we're having right now is that the gut instinct of most people is that, hmm, this is going to be hard, or hmm, I've been told that there's so many challenges, or hmm, the risk is too high. They don't think it through in a rational way, because if they do, the evidence is there that it's important. And the bigger evidence is there that over half of global GDP relies on nature, yet we spend over half of global GDP destroying that asset base. So any right-minded rational being would know that you cannot build a growth economy by eroding the value creation base of that growth at the same clip. Like it's, it's completely, it's not rational at all. So how do we get over the gut piece? And I think the way we get over the gut piece is those examples you talked about earlier Teal. So how do you, how do you show those concrete examples of how it works and how do we replicate those? So the kilowatt hour of, of renewables versus coal is a great example, but then how do you go to policymakers and say, this is even with the $5 trillion of subsidies that you're pushing into the fossil fuel industry because of other perverse incentives. So the whole incentive structure thing and the free market um, economy sort of arguments and the fact that the economics don't make sense, that's all bullshit. <laughs> right now, it's a matter of dismantling all these things and structures we put in to create this perverse relationship that humanity has with nature and just go back to, to brass tacks and say like, look, at the end of the day, over half of global GDP relies on this thing that we need to maintain and restore and, and supplement and add to. We can have more growth if we understand our true asset base. Um, and let's create systems and incentives that promote the real basis of value creation <laughs> rather than this whole created system that we've built over the last hundred years that is destroying humanity. Hari, I think the, the last part of what you said is so important. Let's create the, the systems and the incentive structures that underscore that. Um, because absolutely, yes and. Um, arguably, we can create the rational incentive structures that underscore the gut. Um, and, and let me give you an example of that. Wildfire emissions in the state of California have dwarfed a decade of work to cut emissions and create efficiencies and sustainable outcomes in homes, in yeah. waste, in transportation. Yet, in our uh, air resources budget, we don't value the emissions from wildfire as a negative. So the balance book says, eh, it's okay, because all of that catastrophic wildfire emission is just something that also happens, but we don't have to take account for it in the balance book, right? So we could create, this is a weird way to say it, but create rationality through the systems and incentive structures. Um, again, through demonstrating the art of the possible and then inculcating it into our legal systems. And I love the art of the possible. And I think, um, the, the take-home message from all of this for me is that there is so much that is possible. 
and the stories that you um, you've shared through this uh, this podcast series, Gino, and some of the examples from all of the all of the contributors, is demonstrating that there are examples and pilots and possibilities and and scaling up. The thing is that we just need more momentum behind that and more um, more replication and scaling. And we don't have a heck of a lot of time. It's 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 the it's the biggest challenge of our decade, but it's also the bi- biggest opportunity of our lifetimes. And I think we need to move from this notion of let's keep talking about it, let's set targets for 2050, and let's pilot, 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 and say like, hey, there's a bunch of stuff that works. Let's scale the crap out of them. Yeah. If I can add one more example there, you know, the reason we focus on genomic technology um, is because we see this profound value. But one of the things that comes up a lot, um, I was talking with uh, Kat Taylor last week. She said, well, should we be doing this? Should we be applying? And I think in general, across lots of different technologies, we have to stop getting in our way um, and saying, you know, is it unnatural? Are we concerned? You know, the, the, the spiral of, of considering before we demonstrate. Um, at the end of the day, the problem is substantial and the question is going to be about what is and what will be, not what is and what was. And so how do we position ourselves to be comfortable learning at the same time that we are uncertain? And I think that's a really big and challenging question that Hari, you've just touched on. And Gino is the premise in many ways of the entire podcast series you have. How do we get out of our fear, move toward the demonstration at the same time that we are confronting our concern about how to do it? So I want to ask you guys, as we move toward uh, a natural closure, one, uh, do you guys have a question for each other? Teal, do you have a question for Hari or Hari for Teal? Um, one, two, um, there's a lot of moving parts to this conversation, and some parts are often left unexpressed. And so I want to give you a moment to also think about what you may have wanted to express, but just got uh, uh, you know, sidetracked as a part of just following our story. Our, our stream of consciousness together. <laughs> <laughs> I'll start with a question that's a little bit out of left field, which is that, <clears throat> so Teal and I met each other a couple of years ago, and um, we're about to meet each other in person for the first time on the weekend. <clears throat> and I come from Atlanta, Canada, the home of, th- th- this is going to be contentious, but the home of the, the best maple syrup in the world. Um, <laughs> and my question, Teal, is, is would you would you and and the family like some maple syrup? <laughs> <laughs> I love it. So the the answer to that is um, it comes with a caveat, Hari, which is uh, <laughs> yes, if you eat a bite of a one of my famous pancakes with my four year old mm-hmm. with that maple syrup. <laughs> Absolutely, <laughs> I love it. Perfect. Well, that puts in context um, the question the question I was going to ask you, which is so different. <laughs> I was going to ask you, Hari, if we were wildly successful in the work that we want to do, what would be true in the world? So it's really similar to maple syrup. Yeah, it's the same thing. It all comes back <laughs> to, to the sweetness of pancakes, maple syrup, and future of humanity. I, I think what would be true is that um, I think it comes back to the last part of the conversation, which is that I think what we think is rational today is predicated on this irrational system we've built. I think if we were to be wildly successful, we would have a system that valued things appropriately 
and the incentives align and the rational decision is the decision that made the most sense for mo- more people to make. Hmm. Teal, uh, any final thoughts? Gina, will you come join us from Reno for pancakes? <laughs> for, for sure. I'm going to work on that. I'm really big into butter, so I'll bring a big tub of butter. Uh, <laughs> I'll bring a big tub of butter. Guys, so I know a lot of people are going to want to um, learn more about you. I, I, beginning with Teal, where can people find a little bit more uh, information about uh, the work that you're doing in the world? And then um, Hari after that. Thanks, Chino. Um, yeah, I'll share a pancake recipe for any who are interested. <laughs> and um, our website just launched. I'm really thrilled to be able to share it. So this is great. Uh, Lab2land.institute. That's where you can find out more about the genomic technology work that we're doing and, and the why and the how. And galvanize-partners.com is our, our uh, uh, consulting firm where we focus on advocacy and a lot of the intended consequences we've discussed today. Awesome. And I will share not my own recipe, but um, Kenji Lopez also recipe, which is fantastic for pancakes. Um, <clears throat> but, uh, <laughs> but where you can find me is uh, through our advisory business is www.ecoadvisors.org. Um, it talks about our advisory practice. The second business is an asset management business that we're launching at the moment called Eco Investors Capital. They work together to guide resources to solutions around the world um, and at scale. And look, we talked about this before. We need more people in the tent and we need more voices and more more people in the boat rowing the same direction. Um, my phone number should be on the website. My email is there. Anybody that wants to reach out and talk about how big the tent can get and what they can do. Um, our phone lines and email and everything's always open and we love to include more people and uh, into the mission because it's important and it's, it's the most important thing right now, not only for us in the impact community, but <clears throat> for the little ones, right? We all have kids under 10 and um, this is the work that's going to make a planet hospitable for them and a, and a thriving future for humanity. Thanks for bringing yes. it full circle, Hari. Um, for all those who are listening, uh, we'll have that information in the show notes um, and uh, where you can learn more about Teal and Hari. Um, and now in the meantime, I just want to give you guys a big uh, digital hug and let you know, thanks so much for trusting the process and sharing your story and really and, and really believing in, in the work that you're doing so much um, so that you sometimes share stuff that's just, that's going to encourage people to move off, you know, their comfort zone. I mean, that was my big takeaway. And, but it's very thoughtful movement off the comfort zone. It's not like you're trying to push people. I love Hari's notion of meeting people where they are. I feel like that's been one of my big takeaways just as an adult, as I've gotten older to, to minimize frustration to some extent and, (laughs) you know, and to be more realistic about implementation and action. Um, And, and Teal's, you know, Teal, you you really hitting on this idea of you know I was just spent three days with you uh, at, at a Nexus retreat and, and and I mean you really embrace this notion of possible you know possibility and I mean I can see that that's part of the reason why people come up to you is that people come up to teal to to kind of taste what's possible uh, not just in one terms of your vision but also in themselves so 
thank you so much, um, both of you, for uh, being here today. Thank you, Gino. Thank you, Teal. Wonderful having this conversation. Thank you, Gino. Thank you, Hari. Cannot wait to have you in Tahoe. Hey, everyone. Thanks again for listening in to today's conversation on the poetry of impact. The podcast exists for and because of listeners like you. Be sure to subscribe to the Poetry of Impact podcast on your favorite podcast player. And if you have time, leave us a review. Thanks again and goodbye for now. Till next time. Thank you for listening to the Poetry of Impact podcast. For show notes and additional resources, visit poetryofimpact.com.